if you've done the hard work, you've got yourself through uni, you've got a job that you really like, you're earning more money than you thought you would be earning, you find that there's a whole stack of cash that's burning a hole in your pocket and therefore you spend more of it than you, you expect, you feel like you're not getting ahead despite what you're earning, that's a good reason to go and get advice. Hey, Sally. Hey, Mark. I've got a question for you. Hit me. What does a financial advisor do? Advise about finance? (laughs) Well, today we're going to find out. Excellent. Excellent indeed. So we spoke (laughs) to Charlie Viola, who is a partner for wealth management at Pitcher Partners. Uh, He was also rated number one advisor in Barron's 2018 advisor rankings and was Barron's fourth ranked advisor in 2019. And Barron's is like a an American financial news magazine slash newspaper. Mm-hmm. And he also advises a self-managed super fund, the Chook Super Fund. Ooh, I like it. Well, sounds like he's the right guy to talk to. So you got the 411, as the cool <laughs> kids say, Mark. So what does a financial advisor do? Well, um, I'm not going to spoil the episode and give you the 411, oh, Sally. Oh, rats. Uh, so you have to listen to the whole thing. But I will say that it is relevant for all of us, not only those of us who have uh, the cash to get started investing. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely listen, even if you uh, don't have a big wad, a big sack of money that you're (laughs) just wanting to put on uh, some kind of stocks or something. Fabulous. So I can listen to it. Yes, basically, (laughs) yes. Uh, Keep your ear holes open. Okay, so uh, shall we listen to uh, Charlie? Let's do it. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you. We're really excited to talk to you about uh, financial advice and uh, wealth advisors and how they work. So first up, what does a financial advisor actually do? Fundamentally, we look at a person's situation from end to end and seek to help them meet their goals. So from beginning to end, the first question that we ask everybody and, the, and, and really the process that we go through is really get a good understanding of what their current situation looks like, what assets, what liabilities, what income, what expenses. And then we jump to the other end and talk about what it is that they're actually trying to achieve. The whole process of advice is, is fundamentally trying to bridge the gap of where they are today to where they would like to be at some point in the future. For some people, especially younger people, uh, it's very much about dealing with the here and now. So certainly the advice overlay is also dealing with the here and now. Can I afford to buy a property? Should I buy a property? Should I rent? I've got nine different super funds. Should I collate them together? Uh, how do I start a savings plan? You know, mum and dad gave me 30 grand um, from when grandma died. How do I deal with it? So we'll certainly deal with the here and now but the bigger contextual pieces about trying to meet those longer-term goals. Yeah, that's what I always wonder, being in that first category. I always wonder, should I be seeing a financial advisor or do I like not have enough to actually even bother? Yeah, it's a big question I always have. So I'm a bit of a purist. So, you know, having been an advisor for the last 20 years, I think we can add value to everybody's situation. And I think that there's some kind of core fundamentals that we can add some value, especially to younger people. One is really anybody who's under the age of 45 or 50, you have an enforced savings vehicle, which is super, and you're going to carry that vehicle with you for all 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of your working life. A really easy place to start is just make sure that's locked away in a good spot. It's well invested. It's invested in a manner that you're comfortable from an investment perspective. Then the other overlay pieces that we think are important for really for everybody is, you know, we don't have to project out to age 65. You know, if you're speaking to a 23-year-old, they don't care about when they're 65 and it's so far away. And especially if they haven't done some of the things like get married and have 
kids and all of those pieces are kind of in the way. We just seek to talk about what it is that's important to them at that point in time. There's a heaps of anxiety around, especially, you know, Sydney property prices or property prices generally. So we talk about, well, what are the kind of fundamental things that you need to do if you want to get into the property market? What does it mean if you want to live in the property? What does it mean if you want to rent vest, i.e. you rent elsewhere and you invest in property over time. And then we just make sure that there's good protections in place. Make sure that if you do go out and borrow money to invest, make sure you've got some insurances in place so that if it all goes pair, at least we've got an ability to fix that kind of train wreck scenario for you. But it is still very much about understanding what the individual is looking for and understanding what their financial goals are. And I think we can give people real comfort around meeting some of their lifestyle goals by dealing with the financial. Mm, That sounds really useful. What is the difference between financial advice and wealth advice, or is there no difference? No, it's a little, it's a little interchangeable, really. Um, I guess financial advice for some people will be considered all of the pieces around, you know, the debt advisory, debt reduction, savings plans, helping them buy a house, making sure they understand what contributions need to go into super. As people get older and older, how much money they're going to need to retire on, what level of passive income they need to make work optional, what age they would like to make work optional. So the terms are a little interchangeable. Often we talk about wealth as if somebody already has enough money and they've already at the point where they've met the goals in terms of their ability to obtain the wealth, either because they've worked really hard over their lifetime and they've now got enough money or they've inherited it or, you know, they're from wealthy backgrounds, how the assets actually get managed to make sure that those goals continue to get met. You know, some people will talk wealth is about the money Financial advice is about the kind of building blocks before you even talk about the assets themselves, but they're probably interchangeable in terms of, you know, in terms of the underlying definition. How do financial advisors make money? Uh, Because obviously that's been in the spotlight recently. Typically, if you go and see an advisor, uh, you'll expect to pay a couple of different fees. Generally speaking, every advisor will give you that first meeting free. That first meeting is very much intended to be exploratory. You know, it's very much intended to be you getting understanding of what the advisor can do for you, how they charge, what their process is, and the advisor's job is to really get a good understanding of the individual, what their needs are, what their objectives are, what their goals are, what their lifestyle, what their financial goals are, etc. So that initial meeting, you should always pretty well get that for nothing. If you like what you've heard as a consumer and you like the idea of going through the advice process with an advisor, then you should expect to pay an advice fee. So what we call the document is a statement of advice. So the statement of advice is the document that firstly reads back to the client what their current financial situation is, reads back to them in our words exactly what we think their goals are and then articulates the strategies that we think are appropriate to help them meet those longer term goals. That statement of advice is very much intended to be kind of both the proposal document, but also the pathway that an advisor utilises to help meet the client goals over the medium to long term. Generally speaking, that document, depending upon the complexity, will cost somebody anywhere from a thousand dollars to three or four or five thousand, you know, depending upon how complex it is. If then the client elects to go ahead and work with the advisor going forward to ensure that their needs are met and work through and implement what's in the plan, people should expect to pay an ongoing advisor fee. 
that ongoing advisor fee is generally speaking going to be one of two things. A set fee that is agreed upon between the advisor and the client or a percentage of the underlying assets which are being managed by the advisor on behalf of the client. If part of the advice is to go and get mortgages, to go and get life insurance, those things will have their own costs attached to them. And often advisors will be paid by those as well. The outcome of uh, the Hain Royal Commission is there's a real spotlight in terms of a couple of things. One, disclosure of fees. We have a regulatory environment that requires us very clearly and very articulately to disclose what fees we're getting paid and how we're getting paid. There is also a real requirement around conflicts of interests. So where we're both getting paid by the client and by a product provider, we have to disclose that. We have to disclose that conflict, both in our documents and in an ongoing fashion. One of the outcomes of the Royal Commission in reality is that advice becomes a little less affordable over time because number one, our regulatory constraints are far higher. The things that we need to do to ensure our advice is compliant is far greater than what it was previously. But previously, lots of advisors uh, would have supplemented the cost of advice by receiving remuneration from product. That's no longer really available to us. And, and certainly in our business at Pitcher Partner Sydney, wealth management, uh, we're very much a fee-for-service business. We have been for a long time. We were early movers uh, on that. But certainly those advisors who were linked to financial institutions, vertical integration as they call it, so where you both work for CBA or Westpac or NAB or, or what have you, and the product provider also comes from there, often the advisor's remuneration was somewhat subsidised by the product sale itself. That didn't mean the advice wasn't appropriate. It didn't mean that the product wasn't appropriate. It's just that the advisor could have a slightly lower value client because they were also getting paid by the product. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's something that you sort of hear sometimes in advice about how to choose a financial advisor, which is like to be careful of that and to know yep. what is actually happening in that transaction. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the reality is that the world's moved on and the world's moved on fairly significantly, especially in terms of disclosure of fees. So I'm certainly a big one. As long as you as the consumer know exactly what fees you're paying, how the advice is getting paid and making sure that whatever it is that you are paying, because ultimately, even if the advice is getting paid by the product, the consumer is still paying for it. You know, it's still coming out as a cost to the consumer because the product's more expensive. Provided the client sees absolute value in what's happening, provided they're getting the service they expect, and provided they see that whatever is being put together is helping them meet those longer-term goals that they spent two hours talking about, then the fees should almost be secondary. The best way to choose an advisor is find someone that you can build rapport with, find someone that you genuinely trust, because it's intended to be a long-term relationship. You know, you're meant to kind of take this person throughout your life and have them give you advice on when do we get mortgages, you know, what insurances do I need, I've changed jobs, what do I do about my super now, you know, I've received an inheritance, how do I deal with the inheritance, I've got to pay for the kids' school fees, where does the money come from, I'm about to retire, have I got enough money? It, that should be the life journey of an advisor and a client. So building rapport and making sure that you're getting absolute value for what it is that you're paying is more important than the fees themselves. So given that, when should you actually consider going to see a financial or wealth advisor? 
when I started in the industry 20 years ago, we used to talk to centres of influence, people that could send us work, because you know, you know, the lifeblood of an advisor is, is having people refer work to them. And we talked about moments in their life that were a trigger for advice, inheritance, redundancy, buying a house, selling a house, retirement. So that's kind of the old way of thinking about it. They're the times when people should actually get advice. I guess I've changed my view a little bit. And you know, as I've become more knowledgeable from an advisory perspective, I guess I've changed my view to the point now where people should seek advice really when it is that they've got the energy and the determination to start to think about what financial life might look like over a period of time. If you're 19 and it's your first job and you're still at uni, you probably don't need to go and get a whole stack of advice. But if you've done the hard work, you've got yourself through uni, you've got a job that you really like, you're earning more money than you thought you would you would be earning, you find that there's a whole stack of cash that's burning a hole in your pocket and therefore you spend more of it than you, you expect, you feel like you're not getting ahead despite what you're earning, that's a good reason to go and get advice. You know, when you're sort of moving through your mid-20s and you're finding that your friends are starting to buy houses and you feel like you're being left behind, go and talk to an advisor and find out why. Find out what it is that they might actually be doing. Find out what you could be doing with your money. Yeah, that's excellent ideas. Obviously, as you mentioned, paying $1,000 for a statement advice probably isn't going to be for someone who's in university who's just uh, working part-time and maybe doesn't have a lot to actually spend on that. Yeah, that's right. I guess the reality of it is, is that number one, you need to be able to pay for the advice. And number two, you have to have some substance in terms of the ability to make some of those financial decisions over a period of time. So some of those old pieces still ring true in terms of the triggers for advice, but I think people can do it earlier than what they than what they used to. Uh, you know, previously, the average age of a person that we saw for the first time was late 50s, early 60s. Now, certainly, the average age of the people that we're seeing for the first time would be late 30s, early 40s, for a whole bunch of reasons. One, those people have now had to contribute to super for 15 or 16 years. Therefore, the, the material amount they've got in super is greater. While we've seen slow wage growth over a period of time, we have seen wage growth. You know, some people are earning more today than what they were 15 or, or 20, 20 years ago. Uh, and there is a heap in the media, especially around this kind of anxiety of buying houses and, and wanting to work out how they get into the property market, etc. The other thing that's happening is that we obviously have this, this kind of thick blanket of kind of baby boomers from an economic point of view in Australia, which means that the intergenerational transfer of wealth is now starting to happen. So another good time to get advice is when mum and dad are starting to go, hey, I'd rather you actually have some money now rather than when I'm dead and I can't, you know, I can't see you enjoy it. So previously, once upon a time, we only got money off our parents when they died. Uh, whereas now, as people are getting wealthier and wealthier, they're starting to do that intergenerational transfer a little earlier than what they previously did. Mm, that's excellent. Okay, so given all of that, how do you go about actually shopping for a financial advisor? You know, we have Tinder to find our boyfriends and girlfriends and our partners. Uh, we don't really have that for financial advisors. So how would you go about doing that? The best advisor that you'll ever find is the one that you've been able to build a rapport with and the one that you can genuinely trust and the one that is reasonably upfront with you. So I often think the easiest way to find an advisor is via referral, is talk to other people, talk to friends, talk to family, talk to friends of family, talk to wealthy people, um, and say, so who do you use? There is something like 
20,000 advisors, right? So in reality, we're a dime a dozen. So the best way to find a really good one is take that personal referral because what you actually want to do is turn up with that to that person and at least you know that somebody else actually trusts them. I'm not a big one for badge shopping or brand shopping. I think that there are a heap of really good advisors who people will never see. You know, the, the banks are obviously full of advisors. AMP have got a whole bunch of advisors and those those organisations will have some really, really good ones. But I'm not a big one for bad shopping. I'm not a big one for brand shopping. I'm a big one for people kind of getting that personal referral, finding the relationship, and then going and seeing how it works. I'm also a big one for people seeing more than one. Because in reality, if somebody comes and sees me, and then they go and see the person down the road, if they tell us the exact same story, we should tell them pretty well, pretty close, the exact same outcomes. Because we all go through a process. We all go through a process of understanding assets, liabilities, income, expenses, financial goals, you know, what age you'd like to retire, all that sort of stuff. It's about feeling really comfortable to have good, open, honest conversations with that person. And until such time as you've kind of met a couple and felt comfortable with it, how can you then suddenly give them every piece of data that you've got in your financial life? You know, we as advisors have to be acutely aware that we look after people's life savings. So we want them to trust us. So we want them to have road tested others to see whether or not they actually like us and and are happy to work with us over the long term. Yeah, that's awesome. Charlie, we've come to our rapid fire round. So we like to break up the uh, interview with a few really quick questions and answers. So let's start with the first question. Uh, What's the difference between an advisor and an accountant? An accountant will generally do tax returns. An advisor won't do your tax returns. They'll seek to do the long-term planning piece. Is there anything off limits when you talk to a financial advisor? For example, what can't they help you with when it comes to your finances or related topics? So we can't give tax advice. So we can only give incidental tax advice, incidental to the financial advisory piece. We generally won't give specific property advice, i.e. which property buy one over the other. In reality, we should be able to cover the the whole spectrum of a a client's uh, situation. We can't give legal advice, clearly, because we're not lawyers. Oh, that's great. What is the strangest thing you've ever encountered in your job? Very early on in my career, I worked at CBA. A person walked in with a bag of cash that was three mil, put the bag of cash on the desk and said, you invest this in your name and I'll come back for it in a year. (laughs) Wow. What did you think when that happened? We pushed the bag, pushed the bag back at them and asked them to leave. But Whoa. yeah, that was certainly the strangest thing that's, uh, that's, that's ever happened to this date. I still tell that story because it's still bloody strange. So That's crazy. Do you ever think about who that was? How they got the money? or I think before they left, I actually asked them how they got their money. They wouldn't tell me. So clearly the fact that they asked for it to be invested in my personal name meant that it came as a result of something illegal. I assume it was bizarre. So <laughs> That's awesome. Going to give you some company names and some uh, investment classes, I suppose, or assets. Just want to know what you think, overrated, underrated thoughts. Apple. Apple is the type of asset that should be held by everybody, Um, not because they make disposable plastic phones, but (laughs) because um, one day it'll be a worldwide banking platform. So the power of Apple is huge. Tesla. Tesla is almost the same. The disruption that Tesla is able to produce in the market is huge, not because they make cars, but because they're going to make the bits that have to go into every car over time, you know, lane departure and all that sort of stuff. Amazon. Amazon's going to go from being, you know, click to find a book to click to do my shopping. So again, the power and the reach of that organisation is huge and the disruption that it's able to produce to the rest of the kind of consumer market is really quite significant. So we would be a long-term holder of that type of that type of asset and we really like those 
disruption style assets in in our portfolios. Awesome. Okay, uh, let me change gears and say Bitcoin. I must say that people need to be really wary of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So here I am with with 20 years of of experience in the financial industry, you know, well-educated, and I don't even understand it that well. So it's not certainly not something that we would ever invest in. We don't really understand the market maker for that um, style of asset. So my view is, is be really wary, only invest in things you understand in, and buy good quality, normal assets that have got tangible outcomes to them which cryptocurrency is not. <laughs> Side question, do you get a lot of people coming in asking about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoins? Not not really. The, the odd person, as this kind of generational change occurs and we start to see people who are kind of less than 35, there is certainly the odd question that comes about. Generally speaking, we will seek to send them some information, but we're just not experts on it in, in fairness. And it's uh, you know, again, it, it's hard to see the investment thesis behind Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency. So um, everything we do, we try and create that kind of investment thesis uh, behind. And, and that one's a really hard one to do it with. Gold. Gold, like a number of other asset classes, is a reasonable safe haven. So it doesn't produce income, which means that we don't like it that much because we like assets to produce income. But, you know, it's a reasonable hedge. You know, it's a reasonable kind of safe haven for small parts of big portfolios. Awesome. Uh, What about the big four? The big four banks? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a little contrarian here. You know, I, I still think the banks play a really vital part of our economy. You know, they're, they're huge employers for us. They have a lot to do in terms of the flow of capital. Obviously, the banks still mainly make their money out of credit growth, people going out and borrowing money to buy houses. I think that they, they play a really important role from that perspective. I think a lot of the stuff that's sort of come out of the Hain Royal Commission into banking and financial services um, ha- has meant that the banks have kind of shone a light on their processes. And I think they, you know, some of those are really good things. You know, I, I almost get annoyed at times at as to all the bank bashing that actually goes on. I actually think the, the banks is one of the reasons why our economy is actually so strong. So virtually everybody in Australia holds shares, whether directly or indirectly, in the banks. We all benefit from the manner in which the banks you know, participate in our economy. No, I, I think the banks are really important. And I think the banks, um, and I think we should all, you know, wake up every morning and, and, and kind of thank the financial gods that we have uh, banks that are as strong as they are. Okay, the last one is a uh, more controversial one, but what about marijuana and the companies that are legitimately producing marijuana in various countries? And From an investment perspective, it's probably one of those disruptor assets, right? So it's probably one of those assets that there are a number of clients and a number of wealthy, well-educated clients who, who want to take a piece of marijuana because – take a piece of investing <laughs> in marijuana uh, – because they do see it as that genuine disruptor. You know, they, they see it as uh, that next wave of kind of the medicinal piece. Until such time as it actually meets the mainstream pharmaceutical piece, it's going to be hard to kind of build up the investment thesis on it. And if you actually look at the actual companies who produce this stuff, they continue to be really small cap. They tend to be underfunded. They continue to struggle to kind of win mandates, etc. So they're hard to invest in as a result of that because you get no liquidity and it's hard to see kind of the upside. But the minute it comes to mainstream from a pharmaceutical point of view, I actually think that, you know, however they end up commoditizing marijuana, the the price will end up skyrocketing. And, you know, that's not advice and I don't know that for sure, but that's in reality what we could see actually occurring, especially if the benefits of it can be 
clinically proven. Mm. That's awesome. Well, that's the end of our rapid fire around. So uh, thanks heaps for that. So let's uh, let's move on to our last few questions. So say you've sold me and I'm heading to my first meeting with a financial advisor. What should I be taking with me or preparing? Certainly take with you a good understanding and collate those main, I guess what we call the quantitative pieces. So um, a good understanding of your assets, your liabilities, your income, your expenses, and then have a really good think about what it is that you actually want out of that meeting. You know, what specific financial questions have you got? What goals are you actually trying to achieve? And in reality, what pieces do you want the advisor to cover for you? Do you want him to cover, how do I get the best out of my super? Um, do you want him to cover, do I go and buy a house or, or to live in or do I buy one to rent? Should I borrow to invest in shares? Make sure you're prepared enough so that you get real value out of that first meeting. So at least that time isn't wasted. But also the more prepared you are, the better the advisor is going to have the ability to add value straight away and the better the, your ability to build rapport because you'll be talking about stuff that you're genuinely interested in and genuinely have an outcome that you're looking for from. And is there one question that everybody should definitely ask when they meet with a financial advisor? So notwithstanding that I made the comment before about the fees aren't the be all and end all, I think the best question that can be asked is, how does your advice meet my best interests? Because that's ultimately the role of an advisor to make sure any advice that gets provided is in the absolute best interests of the person that they're looking after. And I think as you get towards the end of that initial meeting, that should be the fundamental question that gets asked. Even if all they're doing is summarising the conversation that you've had over that period, make sure that what they're doing is they're articulating back to you how whatever it is that they're going to suggest that you do is meeting those longer term goals and meeting your best interests. Cool. That's great. You've obviously in the past worked with high net worth individuals. What's the difference when you're giving them financial advice? Yeah, so lots of times it's about protecting the assets and it's about ensuring the assets are well-structured and producing the most efficient outcomes. So what I say, and, and you know, every one of my clients would, would attest to this, is, is that I really say that once we've got the assets in the right buckets, you know, financial advice in Australia really isn't rocket science. You know, we only have four tax structures available to us. So once we've got all the money in the right buckets and we're producing income from the right buckets, I make the point to every client that really I only have three jobs here. One is ensure that the assets continue to produce income because it's that income that ultimately is going to allow them to live happily ever after. Two, ensure we don't blow it up. So ensure that we don't lose the assets or ensure that we invest in things that we're not concerned about the impairment of the asset. Because if the asset becomes impaired, it'll stop producing income, which will stop their ability to live happily ever after. And the third one is, is ensure we get some growth out of the assets so that we protect the buying power out of the money over time. So the Reality is, is make sure it's well-structured, make sure it's efficient from a tax perspective best we can, and make sure we're buying good quality assets that produce income, and we do see some level of growth over time to protect its buying power. And you mentioned impaired. What does that mean for the average person on the street? I guess the way we measure risk is not so much the risk of volatility, not so much the risk of an asset uh, going up or down in value, rather the asset becoming impaired or fundamentally disappearing or not having any value at all. And, you know, to, to use a really simple example, whether CBA shares are $81 or $79 or $76 or $83, the chances of that asset becoming impaired 
or turning into being worth zero is very low. The chances of it not being able to produce income for you is very low because we know that that company has got good key competitive advantages, good continuity of earnings, and therefore, whether the share price is $75 or $85, it's going to continue to produce a return on your investment. You used the the comment before about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. There's an asset that we have no confidence won't simply become impaired. We may wake up tomorrow and someone's cracked the code, someone's undone the blockchain, and it's worth nothing. Right. So hence, we probably don't really want to invest in it. Yeah, right. Okay. And obviously, working with high net worth individuals, do you have any interesting stories that you can share? Obviously, without mentioning names. (laughs) Not really, except that you find the wealthier the people, the nicer they tend to be. <laughs> wow. um, and uh, the more relaxed, I guess, they don't have some of the anxieties that the rest of us do in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, having enough money in life. Thank you so much for your time, Charlie. Uh, it's been a really great conversation. I've learned heaps. So. Thank you, Mark. Much appreciated. Ah, I feel richer already. (laughs) (laughs) Great line, Sally. (laughs) Thanks. I didn't rip that off our producer, Franco, at all. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening, everyone, to another fabulous episode of Pocket Money. Yeah. uh, As always, if you enjoy the show, uh, be sure to follow us or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And uh, as well, feel free to leave a lovely review. And for all of the fire money memes, follow us on Instagram at Pocket Money Podcast. Fire is in like spicy, not a financial <laughs> financially independent retire, retire early. <laughs> Although we do have some of those as well, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks for the love, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, pals. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au/podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorised, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. (laughs) It's a podcast. Uh, Like, we're not seeing anyone. (laughs) This can be listened to in any order. (laughs) I'm so sorry.